Hello, and welcome to episode number 380 of the Armin Show podcast. Science, people, creativity, learning more, spreading knowledge. Share this on YouTube, wherever it might be. Short clips always coming out, which is nice. And like and subscribe if you might. On this episode here, we have a professor and a philosopher, author of a book. We'll be talking a bit about philosophy. My guest today is Professor Chiara Russo Kraus. Chiara, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Armin, and thank you very much for inviting me to discuss my upcoming book uh, on Josef Petzold. I'm spoiling the topic uh, of this episode. <laughs> this is wonderful. Yes, we will be speaking about that. And before mentioning the book, you are a researcher at the University of Naples, Federico II, Department of Humanities in Italy. Yes. Uh, before we get into the book, your position, why are you there? How did you get into there? Why philosophy? How does that connect to you as a person? Um, I uh, developed uh, an interest uh, in philosophy and history of philosophy while I was uh, in high school. So I decided uh, to study philosophy at the university and uh, uh, remained uh, at uh, the university ever since. So I was born uh, and raised <laughs> as a philosopher in Naples University. And I got pretty lucky because, as you know, it's not uh, very easy to have a straightforward uh, career at the university, especially in topics uh, such as philosophy. But uh, I cannot complain because, uh, yes, I, I succeeded <laughs> into making philosophy uh, my life so I'm uh, pretty happy with this with uh, everything uh, with how everything uh, turned out uh, in my life uh, with philosophy and that I was able to do what I love <laughs> it's a special thing it's nice when it connects with what you like and you can do it for a long time it makes a big difference because there's compounding value when you're doing something regularly or of a prolific nature did you uh, what was the earliest time when philosophy meant something to you? And was there any specific categories of it or topics in it that seemed to speak to you more? Uh, probably I always said like uh, 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 reflective uh, attitude. I don't know how to say. Uh, and then uh, while I was growing up, uh, I think uh, I was about uh, 10 uh, or 11, uh, I remember that I always started uh, to think about uh, uh, the world from a very general perspective, uh, like uh, that kind of existential uh, questions uh, that uh, you start to ask yourself uh, while uh, you are growing up, like, uh, why are we here? Uh, what's the meaning of life? Uh, and I also had uh, a religious uh, uh, education. My parents are Catholics. So I started to question myself whether God is real or not. So I was like involved in all these sort of questions uh, all the day. And then suddenly I had to uh, begin study philosophy because it was uh, a topic, a mandatory subject uh, at school, uh, and it was like, uh, okay, finally something <laughs> that uh, is giving me not uh, the answers, but uh, the tools uh, to try to uh, dig deeper <laughs> with these questions. So uh, it was meant to be in a way. <laughs> you know, based on just the, exactly what you said, the tools to look at it, and it's not really about the answers, but to look at it, what do you think about right now? It's connected directly, artificial intelligence. There's a lot of questions about um, when you use these online services, the more important part is not what it gives you, but now the really important part is the questions you are giving the artificial intelligence to get what you want from it. Is the question more important than the answer in all of life? Yeah, yeah, I think because uh, first of all, uh, the answers uh, depends on the questions. So if you don't ask the right uh, questions, so you are never going to get the right answers. Uh, so you can uh, 
even develop a machine that is amazing at giving answers, but you still need someone to ask the right questions to these machines, as you said. And philosophy surely helps you understand what are the kind of questions that you should ask because uh, different questions open up uh, entirely different worlds, uh, approaches, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, last thing before we get into the book is the university you are at. Is there anything about it that speaks to you directly? You're in Italy. Uh, is there any philosophical history that comes to mind from there? Or what um, locations connect with you in what you do? Yeah, as I said, I'm very much rooted at the Naples University since uh, I studied there and I've uh, always worked there. And uh, uh, it's also, um, it also shaped uh, how, uh, what is my philosophical uh, approach because uh, here in Naples we have a very strong uh, tradition in the history of philosophy uh, with a strong uh, philological approach. Uh, uh, so, like, uh, uh, stay really close uh, to the original text, uh, always read the text in the original language, uh, or also do archival researches uh, on manuscripts, uh, unpublished drafts. Uh, so, this uh, very strong historical uh, and philological approach uh, is uh, very much uh, taught uh, uh, in Naples. Uh, so. I'm happy to be part of this uh, tradition and to keep uh, this, uh, this school uh, uh, going, <laughs> uh, hopefully, with my work. So, uh, and, and you can see that uh, in my book, too, I discuss like uh, correspondence, uh, uh, manuscripts, and these sort of things. Uh, uh, and yeah, that uh, are. Uh, beyond the, the, the simple text uh, that uh, often philosophers uh, as the, um, is the focus of their uh, investigations. The details. Now, the book that you have written or that is coming out very shortly is called The Philosophy of Joseph Petzold from Mox Positivism to Einstein's Relativity. Who is this individual? And why was he selected to look at? Uh, from a biographical point of view, so the point of view of my research, uh, I end up uh, uh, studying uh, Petzold, uh, coming from my study of uh, Avenarius, who was uh, uh, the main topic uh, of my doctoral uh, thesis. Uh, and even Avenarius is not uh, a very much known uh, philosopher nowadays, but he was uh, uh, pretty important uh, uh, back then. And uh, uh, Avenarius is, uh, Richard Avenarius is generally mentioned along with uh, the more famous philosopher Ernest Mach, uh, because it was thought that uh, Mach and Avenarius uh, were part uh, of this. Uh, general trend uh, uh, that is sometimes called the uh, uh, empirical criticism or empirical uh, criticism, uh, critical empiricism with various names. But uh, they are always uh, uh, or pretty often uh, uh, mentioned together as part of this uh, uh, school of thought, uh, this current uh, of the late uh, 19th century. But uh, while I was uh, uh, digging deeper uh, on these issues and these topics, uh, I find out that uh, uh, this idea that Mach and Avenarius were part of this uh, same trend was actually an invention by Petzold, uh, who was uh, uh, a pupil, uh, a follower, and a friend of both uh, Mach and Avenarius. So I thought that it was interesting uh, to find how he uh, managed to shape the reception uh, and um, of these two philosophers uh, so as to uh, create this idea that they were part of the same trend and so I decided to investigate his philosophy and uh, I thought it was interesting also because there was no publication uh, on Petzold and uh, another characteristic of uh, 
us uh, in Naples uh, is that we are, uh, uh, yeah, we like uh, to focus uh, on uh, these uh, minor philosophers, uh, so to speak. Uh, uh, they are often left aside from uh, the, uh, the big histories of philosophy because uh, they can reveal uh, uh, important parts uh, of the history of philosophy that are uh, uh, that remain in the shadow that uh, that may help to have uh, the whole picture and uh, understand how everything went. Like so, for example, for this Mach and Davenarius connection, it's part of the history of philosophy. But uh, studying Petzold, now we know why it became uh, this uh, idea. How this idea that Mach and Davenarius were part of the school of thought. Um, came to be. I noticed that in the material, and also I highly value when we look at the smaller entities or the niche individuals in a category, because it's very easy to look at the large figure that has like an umbrella over it, but without all the elements, it's kind of like, let's say you look at a tree, a lot is going on up there, but without all the pieces underneath that are elements of it, maybe not the whole large figure, that doesn't exist. And I don't like to discount that part. And everybody always looks at this part anyway, so it's not really, it's like when you park in front of a store, if you park in the back, you'll never have to uh, find parking because nobody's there because there's uh, less people and it's uh, harder work, but it's worth it because it's your own space versus here, all this traffic and rumble, but that's because the demand is heavy and everybody always looking at the main portion. So I like that part. Yeah, and it's also like um, an alternative approach to the history of philosophy because often there is uh, this idea that the history of philosophy is like uh, the gallery of portrait uh, of all the important philosophers uh, in chronological sequence. But the uh, history of philosophy is more about uh, context, uh, relations, uh, uh, how all these uh, ideas uh, uh, evolved, uh, grow, and pass to one philosopher to another. And uh, if you want to connect the dots, uh, then you will need the minor philosophers. Otherwise, you have only this portrait that stands there unrelated. Uh, but that's not the history of philosophy. <laughs> I was missing some pieces. Kind of like branches of a tree in a way. And yeah, the smaller to the to the larger in a way. Now, also one other thing is how much of philosophy should be looked at as like a past person handing the baton to the next person to run the race and continue the message like a link through. Is it like a direct link? How would you describe the linkage of one generation to the previous? Um. I think that there are like uh, uh, two levels. Uh, one, uh, I believe that uh, there is this uh, passing of the baton, as you said, uh, element in the history of philosophy, because there are these uh, also like uh, personal uh, relationships, uh, like in the case of uh, Mach, uh, Avenarius, and Petzold. Uh, so they themselves uh, often believe that uh, they have the task uh, to pass the baton. but. Uh, uh, the other uh, level is that uh, the context, the background, uh, the history is changing. Uh, so even if you just want to pass the baton, uh, you are in a different landscape uh, uh, in comparison to your uh, forerunners. Uh, so your philosophy is going to uh, deal with different problems, uh, different uh, political situation, uh, different uh, scientific discoveries. Uh, uh, and uh, you have to adapt and adjust uh, and reflect uh, this uh, uh, different landscape. So even if you want to pass the baton, uh, you have to also uh, uh, yeah, reflect uh, this, uh, the, the, the historical change in, change, change in the context. Uh, and that's what makes uh, history of philosophy. So the continuity and also the disruptions uh, related to the context. Mm -hmm. I think about it like, um, even if I did the exact same thing that somebody did before or thought how they thought 
but the time is different. If I copy their exact everything, it's still not going to come out the same because of all the different variables now. I can't, I can't even copy it if I try it, I think. No copy there. Now, a few concepts are covered in the book, and even Einstein comes up, which is wonderful. And uh, his philosophical landscape is described. One first topic is, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it properly, but Eindutigkeit. Eindutigkeit. Yes. Um, and or uh, unique features of an item. Can you speak on that, what that represents, and um, what Petzold got from his larger figures in that regard? Yes. Maybe we can talk uh, about uh, uh, this topic of... Uh... Uh, the principle of uh, Eindeutigkeit, uh, which is one of the main topics of uh, uh, Petzold uh, um, philosophy in relation uh, with his uh, mentor, Ernest Mach. Uh, so uh, that we can understand uh, also uh, the differences between uh, uh, Petzold and Mach, because uh, uh, coming back to this passing of the baton, uh, from a point of view, Petzold wanted to like uh, spread uh, uh, the philosophies uh, of uh, Mach and Davenarius uh, uh, and he thought of himself like this uh, spokesperson uh, of this new trend uh, that had to be defended uh, and uh, promoted in philosophical circles, associations, uh, journals. Uh, uh. But uh, on the other end, uh, he of course also introduced some uh, uh, original elements uh, uh, in his own philosophy, so he, he didn't just uh, parrot uh, Mach and Davenarius' philosophy. Um, and uh, one of these, uh, uh, one of the elements that is original of uh, Petzold philosophy is, is this uh, uh, principle of uh, Eindeutigkeit, uh, which can be translated as uh, uh, uniqueness uh, or univocalness. And uh, it's original in comparison to Mach because. Uh, Ernest Mach philosophy has this sort of uh, indeterministic tendency uh, because, uh, uh, of course, one of the main topics of uh, Ernest Mach is uh, uh, what's science uh, and how science relate uh, uh, to the experience, uh, to, the, to the actual world. And uh, the idea of Mach is that uh, we human beings build and uh, uh, formulate uh, um, scientific concepts, uh, scientific laws uh, uh, as uh, tools, uh, practical tools uh, to try to organize the world and uh, to navigate uh, the world. So ultimately for Mach science as uh, this sort of uh, uh, pragmatic uh, justification. So since it has a pragmatic uh, justification, it doesn't have like uh, a metaphysical uh, uh, assumption. So Mach doesn't say the world is actually like that. He says science works like, like that because uh, we need some tools to, uh, like for example, foresee how certain events are going to be. So we formulate this uh, scientific laws and scientific concept that allow us to make some predictions because these are useful. But as I said, ultimately, there is a pragmatic justification. And what uh, Petzl changes is that on the contrary, it, uh, uh, he introduces uh, this uh, strong deterministic uh, uh, metaphysical assumption. Uh, so for him, uh, for Petzold, uh, the world is characterized by a strong necessity. Everything happens according to certain reasons and nothing could ever go otherwise that it uh, eventually go. So the concept of uh, the principle of Eindeutigkeit is, is um, a philosophical uh, um, concept to address uh, this um, issue. In particular, in, I try uh, to explain uh, this notion in the book uh, using the image of the billiard ball because uh, I think that uh, it helps uh, 
uh, understanding what uh, Petzl had uh, in mind. If we imagine the billiards ball, one billiard ball hit another. At first, uh, we may think that uh, the billiard ball that uh, is hit may go in whatever direction. But in reality, it only goes in one direction. And this is the uniqueness, that uh, the real trajectory is only one. So for Petzl, the task of science is to address this uniqueness. Why the conditions of these events led to this one trajectory? So the task of science is to reconstruct, describe the world in such a way as to explain why these conditions lead to only this one outcome. So in the case of the billiard ball, we use the law of the parallelogram of forces because there is only one diagonal. So the uniqueness of the diagonal is a tool to address the uniqueness of the actual real trajectory. But again, the important thing is that it's not only like an epistemological concept, it's not only that we have to find a unique description, but it's also a metaphysical assumption because ultimately there is this deterministic assumption that the conditions of the event lead only to one outcome. Only that one outcome was necessary and it was bound to happen. And in contrast for Mach, since there is a pragmatic justification, there is always a room for the world uh, to go in other direction that we didn't uh, predict uh, because uh, it's just uh, our attempt to bring order in the world but we cannot assume that uh, the world actually is uh, ordered necessary and always go according to certain plans and certain laws and so on. I hope uh, it was explained. <laughs> That's a wonderful explanation and also it is related to I think about it like uh, A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, and uh, it was a direct link in these parts. So thinking that there were so many options from C to D, you would be saying it's not the case, and instead this was a direct link, and just to keep looking back, science would look back a few steps and see what leads to this in the first place as far as we would like to go, and then we analyze it. Yeah, and it, it was also because uh, in the 19th century there was this, uh, uh, we could say, uh, not a rebirth, but uh, mm, um, uh, a great uh, uh, spread of uh, materialistic mechanisms. So uh, the old idea that uh, Fundamentally, the world is like a machine that happens according to necessary law. So once you set the world in motion, the whole future is already determined from the beginning because being a machine, it cannot go in different directions. And uh, Petzl embraced and endorsed this, uh, this assumption. And uh, yeah, as I said, his uh, notion of uh, Eindeutig was uh, an attempt to translate this idea in uh, in, in philosophical terms. Mm -hmm. Now, is that concept related to, as you mentioned a little bit earlier about things would be that way, I think something like that, uh, relativistic positivism, which I read quite a bit about after the fact to find out more about it. And what is positivism and what is uh, relativistic positivism the link between things and is it like uh, guaranteed it would be that way almost like you're making something happen yeah it, it plays a big part in defining this relativistic positivism which is uh, like uh, the label that uh, Petzl himself uh, coined uh, for his own philosophy. So it's not uh, a term that I invented or some other uh, historian or philosopher invented, but he himself chooses to define his philosophy uh, as uh, relativistic uh, positivism. And uh, in a way, we may say that uh, relativistic positivism 
um, almost sound like an oxymoron, like two opposite uh, uh, philosophical position merged together. Because, uh, of course, uh, relativism is the idea that we only know the world from our own perspective, from our own point of view in relation to us. On the other hand, Petzl believed, and that is the positivist part, that we don't know just the appearance of the world. We actually know the world. We do know the reality. And as I said, this is the positivist part. But one would say that these are contra like contradictory assumptions or statements, because if you say that we only know the world as it appears to us in relation to us, then we do not know the actual world, but we only know its appearance. But uh, that's uh, what uh, Petzold rejected, this uh, conclusion, this deduction. So he agreed with the assumption we only know the world in relation to us, but he disagreed with the uh, further implication then, therefore we only know the appearance of the world. And how can one accept the assumption but not the conclusion? The point is how we define this in a relation to us. Because generally in the history of philosophy, when we say we only know the world in relation to us, this us are the philosophical subjects, the egos, uh, the, the forms uh, of uh, knowledge, uh, the a priori forms of knowledge in Kantian terms, uh, or all these uh, kinds uh, of concepts, uh, the consciousness, uh, and so on. But uh, the difference is that for Petzold, when we say, or when he says, we only know the world in relation to us, this us is the actual human being, the organism, the brain, the nervous system. And that's where the principle of Eindeutigkeit guide comes into play. The point is that if knowledge is the relation between the world and the brain, and not the relation between an abstract object and an abstract philosophical subject, then this relation between the world and the brain works, happens, according to the necessary laws of nature, according to uh, necessary uh, to that necessity that is the principle of Eindeutigkeit. So the principle of Eindeutigkeit, uh, the univocalness, the uniqueness, uh, governs also the brain and its interaction with the environment. And that's therefore, that's the reason why relativism doesn't mean subjectivism or skepticism, because this uh, relationship between our brains and the environment uh, is governed by the laws of nature. So saying that the world is in relation to us, to our brains, doesn't mean uh, subjectivism or uh, skepticism. It means that uh, our knowledge is a natural event, uh, just like uh, uh, a thunderbolt striking uh, a tree. A thunderbolt striking a tree is a relationship between the thunderbolt and the tree and is governed by the laws of nature. Knowledge is a relation between the world or a certain part of the world and our brain, and it is as well governed by the laws of nature. So why should this relationship between the brain and the world be mysterious or more mysterious than the relationship between the thunderbolt and the tree? So, and that's why, uh, that's what uh, relativism, uh, relativistic uh, positivism is. This relative to us doesn't mean skepticism because it's a relationship uh, governed by the laws of nature that is part of the world. It's a natural event, uh, knowledge, cognition, and so on. So it has, uh, it's not something mysterious that we cannot explain, that we must uh, investigate uh, with uh, philosophical tools. Uh, it's just uh, something that we can uh, investigate with scientific tools, so with the tools of experimental and physiological psychology, and uh, so on. You mentioned subjectivism there. 
and uh, maybe alternate points. What would be counterpoints to his view on this topic? The problem uh, with every attempt uh, to reduce knowledge uh, to, uh, to the brain activity ultimately is always uh, uh, the fact uh, that it's uh, difficult uh, to explain how uh, consciousness uh, arises from uh, this uh, physical activity that is the brain. So we can try to explain a way uh, to say that it's a false problem, uh, that uh, consciousness is, is not something uh, different uh, than the, the brain activity that uh, underlies it. But um, there is this quality in consciousness uh, that uh, uh, it's difficult uh, to, uh, to reduce it uh, to the activity of uh, neurons, uh, brain, uh, and brain cells, uh, and so on. So we can try to dig this problem out of the window, but it will always come back to haunt us. <laughs> you know, related to that, in the current moment, what are the largest views that exist on, this is unrelated to the book kind of, but on consciousness, what would you say are the prevailing views on how to look at consciousness today? Uh, I think it's interesting that, uh, um, of course, uh, the two main uh, adversaries in the debate about uh, the mind-body problem are the physicalist view, uh, which was kind of uh, supported by Petzold, so that uh, uh, mind activity ultimately is the same as brain activity. And uh, um, the other, uh, the other <clears throat> position uh, is the dualistic point of view that uh, there is the mind and there is the brain. And I think it's interesting that uh, in, in, in the last years, uh, there is also a resurgence uh, of uh, pan, pan panpsychism. I don't know what is the precise. Oh, panpsychism. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that that was also a, a view that was uh, supported by some um, by some thinkers uh, during the nineteenth century, uh, such as Fechner, who was uh, a, an important uh, influence uh, on Avenarius and also on Petzold. Uh, and yeah, so it, it's interesting, uh, but. Um, that, that we see uh, like the same fighters uh, still uh, uh, fighting each other uh, now the, nowadays uh, uh, than in the 19th century. So it's a proof uh, that uh, this problem uh, probably it's never going to be solved because maybe it's just uh, uh, an unsolvable problem uh, of philosophy. So that there wasn't like an actual progress, uh, even after all the discoveries of uh, neuropsychology and these sort of things. Because sometimes uh, uh, scientific advancement uh, are just scientific advancement and cannot change in deep uh, uh, philosophical problems. So uh, it's like, uh, I don't know, uh, like the oceans. Uh, the philosophical problems uh, are uh, very deep uh, and uh, the scientific uh, discoveries uh, sometimes uh, remain on the surface. Sometimes they can uh, go deep enough to change also the philosophical questions, uh, but all the innovations in the neuropsychological neuro, uh, uh, research uh, couldn't uh, affect uh, the way the, the, the mind-body problem was already uh, formulated in the 19th century. Probably. One thing I think about in relation to this is that even with the various changes of who knows how many years, the same biological processes that I have in my brain or running through are the same ones that somebody probably 8,000 years had going on, same vasopressin receptor and same serotonin and dopamine pathways. So 
the those basic items for us physically have not changed much and the things on top of that are kind of like the ripple on top of the ocean but the base has not altered currently yeah cannot change it so much yeah so maybe after adaptation now one other concept that is brought up is Einstein has a famous theory of relativity. Petzold has a view on relativity that is his own interpretation. Does he disagree with Einstein? Does he agree? Where do they mesh? Um, if you allow uh, here to, uh, I'd like to uh, maybe begin uh, with uh, Ernest Mach to explain better uh, what was uh, of the view on relativity for this reason and also uh, of course because Ernest Mach was uh, himself uh, a big influence uh, on Einstein so that uh, he may help us uh, connecting the dots and uh, so as I said uh, uh, Mach influenced Einstein in that uh, already Mach uh, questioned uh, uh, the idea of uh, uh, absolute motion, uh, absolute space, uh, and absolute time uh, that was uh, part uh, of the Newtonian uh, uh, view of the world. And in particular, in particular uh, Mach claimed that uh, the concepts of absolute motion, absolute space, and absolute time had no meaning because uh, we always uh, define uh, space, time, and motion in relation to something else. So even if there is no explicit uh, uh, frame of reference, uh, we always need at least uh, an implicit uh, frame of reference uh, to claim that something is moving, to claim that something happens in time, uh, or um, uh, that uh, something has a certain uh, position uh, in space. Because, for example, saying that something is moving uh, per se has no meaning because something is always moving relative to, to something else. Uh, to say that some, for example, if we say that uh, there is uh, only one object uh, in the entire universe, it would make no sense to say that is moving or that is uh, stationary because the concept of uh, motion is a relative concept. Something moves relative to something else. So, the idea of Mach was that physics, in particular, have an implicit frame of reference in the fixed stars. So even when physics speaks of motion, time, space, without addressing what is the frame of reference that is using, these implicit frame of reference are the fixed stars. Now, in his uh, 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 correspondence uh, uh, with Mach, Petzold discuss uh, these uh, issues. And uh, he, of course, accepts uh, uh, Mach's uh, rejection of the concept of absolute space, time, and motion. But he claims that the frame of reference of physics is and should be the human body. So again, the brain, the nervous system, because we actually regard the world from our own point of view, and this means from the point of view of our relationship with the environment, of the relationship of our brain with the environment and the world. So this should also be the actual frame of reference of physics. And in this way, we would, we would also uh, succeed uh, in overcoming uh, the fake boundaries uh, between different sciences uh, like uh, psychology and physics. Uh, we would have this uh, unified uh, science uh, that has the brain uh, of man uh, at, his, uh, at its uh, center. So this was uh, uh, Petzold's uh, idea uh, of the, uh, that we are our own frame of reference. So. As I said earlier, uh, when we were discussing the passing of the baton and the changing philosophical uh, context, uh, 
Petzl wanted to uh, promote uh, Marx philosophy, but uh, he had to address uh, the changing uh, philosophical and scientific uh, context that was characterized in the uh, first decades of the 20th century by this uh, revolution in physics uh, that is uh, the theory of relativity by Einstein. So since he believed that uh, the theories, uh, the philosophies of Mach and Avenarius uh, were the only philosophies who could uh, uh, meet the challenge uh, of modern science, he also had to prove that they could uh, meet the challenge of the theory of relativity by Einstein. And in particular, he tried to support the thesis that this philosophy by Avenarius, but in particular by Mach, were the perfect philosophical interpretation for the theory of relativity because there is this strong affinity between relativistic positivism and the theory of relativity. And in particular, there are two uh, affinities. The first one, of course, is the relativism part, uh, because like relativistic positivism claims that everything is all, there is no absolute reality, but the reality is always given in relation to something else. So uh, the theory of relativity by Einstein uh, claimed that we always have to refer uh, to a specific frame of reference, in particular, uh, for example, uh, when we are measuring the length of a body, it doesn't make sense to uh, talk about uh, the length of a body in absolute without specifying uh, in relation to what the frame of reference, uh, because when a frame of reference uh, is uh, moving at a certain velocity, then the measurement of the length of an object uh, will vary. And this is the first uh, uh, element uh, that connects the two. And the second fact is uh, that the fact that we always must refer to a frame of reference doesn't, or the fact that uh, every description, every measurement is always relative to a certain frame of reference, and that therefore there is no absolute reality, doesn't mean that we fall into skepticism or a sort of solipsism of the frame of references, uh, frames of reference, because the important thing is that there are laws. And these laws are what allow us to translate what we see in a frame of reference into what we would observe in a different frame of reference. So in the case of the, um, of the theory of relativity, these laws are the Lorentz transformations, uh, which are a mathematical uh, series uh, of tools uh, that allow us to calculate, uh, for example, the length of a body in a different frame of reference. So to sum up everything, the important thing is that First, we always have to refer to a frame of reference because everything is always in relation to something else. And the second element is that the lawfulness, the fact that these relations are governed by law, as, as a consequence that this relativity doesn't fall into skepticism because the relations themselves are governed by laws. And so we can shift from one frame of reference from one point of view to the other. So according to Petzl, these two elements uh, uh, showed that uh, uh, the theory of relativity was uh, a sort of uh, uh, scientific confirmation uh, of the truth uh, of uh, relativistic uh, positivism. There's a strong link there. One thing you reminded me of was you had mentioned the arbitrary barriers between the sciences mentioned. And one time I spoke with Professor Lee Cronin at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and he connected them in some ways, physics, biology, chemistry, and the various fields. And he described how they're all linked. What how would you describe the link between the various fields or how you see them? Philosophy, math, all those. How do you look at that framework? Um, 
from speaking from my point of view or the point of view of Petzold? I'm kind of curious of both, actually. So I would like uh, okay. Petzold first because we were speaking about Petzold and then and then you're. Yeah. Uh, so from the point of view of Petzold, uh, again, the problem is that uh, to oppose the old concept uh, of man as uh, the subject, uh, the philosophical subject, uh, the ego, because. Uh, if uh, we human beings uh, are subjects in the philosophical sense uh, of the word, then uh, you have uh, two different fields. You will have uh, the field of physics, which deal with the outer world, the external reality, the material world, and the field of psychology, which deals with the inner world, consciousness, the subject, and so on. So two dimensions and therefore two fields of investigation. If, like Petzl did, you say that knowledge is not the dimension of the inner world of consciousness of the subjectivity and so on, but it's simply this natural event, this relationship between the brain and the environment, then, as I said before, it's just another event in the world. So there is no different, actual difference between physics and psychology. Maybe you can have different field of investigation, different interests, but they are all part of one unified science which deals with this unified world which has no different dimensions in it. So, from my point of view, uh, again, uh, I think that uh, the problem of consciousness uh, always uh, come back uh, through the window when you try to kick him out. <laughs> so, uh, it's difficult to say that uh, psychology has no, no, no peculiar uh, field. Uh, and maybe a confirmation for this is that uh, uh, when Petzl was writing, uh, they pretty much believed that uh, uh, the, the era of uh, scientific uh, psychology was coming, uh, and uh, once uh, you study the mind through the brain, uh, everything will be easy to understand. Uh, and uh, so, but uh, we are speaking in uh, 2023, and uh, psychology is very far from being a science. <laughs> so this project kind of failed, and maybe this is further proof that consciousness ultimately is not so uh, reducible to physics, uh, to the physical world, uh, to the activity of the brain, and so on. One more on. Mr. Petzold is, are there any current philosophers that are a branch off from his view? Has anybody um, followed a lot of what he has put out to, to today? Um, I think that an uh, honest question, an honest answer to this question would be no. And I also try to explain uh, the reasons uh, of uh, Petzl failure, which uh, of course uh, may be uh, Petzl fault, uh, probably 50-50 uh, at least, uh, maybe because uh, uh, his philosophy uh, was, uh, uh, he tried to up update this philosophy to uh, meet the challenge of, uh, of the new physics uh, uh, and Einstein physics, but uh, maybe he didn't succeed 100% uh, also because uh, he had no, uh, he hadn't uh, a, a very profound understanding of physics because uh, he hadn't studied uh, physics. Uh, so he, he hadn't the mathematical tools, the mathematical understanding that was necessary to actually uh, propose a philosophy of science uh, that was meaningful. So this part uh, is probably uh, Petzl's fault, but uh, there was also uh, this 
event that kind of uh, undermined uh, Petzold's attempt to propose uh, uh, the philosophy of Mach uh, as the official uh, philosophical interpretation of the theory of relativity. Because as I explained in the book, at first uh, Einstein himself uh, uh, kind of endorsed uh, Petzold's interpretation of the theory of relativity. Uh, in uh, 1914, uh, when Einstein moved uh, to Berlin, uh, he was asked uh, by this local newspaper, the Vossische Zeitung, uh, to write an article uh, uh, to explain to the, to the readers uh, of the journal uh, the theory of relativity. And at the end, uh, he suggested uh, two further readings, uh, a book uh, by the physicist Emil Kohn and uh, a paper by Petzold himself. Uh, uh, that proposed this philosophical interpretation of the theory of relativity. So this is already a strong endorsement uh, of a Petzold interpretation. So one uh, uh, could say if Einstein himself supported the Petzold interpretation of the theory of relativity, then uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is something important that uh, could make uh, uh, Petzold philosophy long-lasting, uh, but uh, uh, there was this uh, uh, um, incident, uh, I don't know how to define it, uh, in uh, 1921 when uh, the son of Ernest Mach published uh, this uh, manuscript by Ernest Mach called uh, The Physical Optics with a preface uh, in which apparently Mach dismissed and rejected the, the theory of relativity. And this created quite a buzz in the philosophical and scientific world of the time because uh, the connections between Mach's work, Mach's work and Einstein's works were well known and widely discussed and supported by Einstein himself. So to find out that Ernest Mach rejected the theory of relativity was quite a surprise for many people and for Einstein himself. And we can see a very big shift in tone in the writings of Einstein about Mach before and after the publication on, uh, of the physical optics. So after this publication where he finds out that apparently Mach dismissed the theory of relativity, he started to distance himself from Mach, from Machian philosophy. He apparently doesn't want to have anything in common with Mach anymore. And of course, this affected also Petzold, who was the main representative of Machian philosophy back then and the main supporter of the idea of the philosophical connections between Einstein uh, and Mach, uh, and therefore also between Einstein and his own Machian philosophy. And of course, we now know that the preface of the optics uh, is a forgery, is fake, uh, because it was uh, brought, uh, uh, it was written by uh, Mach's uh, son Ludwig uh, for various reasons discussed by Professor Geron Bolters in his book. Uh, who is the professor who made the philological work uh, uh, that uh, discovered that uh, the preface was a forgery. So we don't know uh, if the poor Petzold uh, would uh, have remained more uh, successful in the philosophical world uh, if uh, uh, the fake preface of the, of the physical optics uh, uh, was never written, who knows. <laughs> It's funny to see that it's still about human-human connections of the time. Sometimes you look at the figures of the past and they are very, like a statue, they did this and did this, but at their time there were still uh, dealings between and a, ma a made-up manuscript can still impact their relations and affects who supports who, just like people today would still have uh, qualms between them while they have their broader message that they are putting out there. They're still humans at heart. Yeah. My two last questions for you. One of them, what would you want someone to take away from after having read your book? 
maybe uh, apart from, of course from knowing uh, who was uh, Joseph Petzold and uh, what uh, was uh, his role in the history of philosophy, uh, the importance uh, of uh, studying uh, also minor philosophers. Uh, uh, I hope that uh, one may understand that uh, we need this uh, minor philosopher to connect the dots and uh, broad light uh, and uh, uh, support our understanding uh, of a certain uh, uh, eras and the period of time because otherwise we'll have uh, these uh, blind spots uh, uh, the, and uh, we, we couldn't make sense of things uh, at least from an uh, historical philosophical point of view. We don't want to have those blind spots. And my last question is, are there any philosophers that have guided your trajectory or a big part of you going in one path? Are there any key figures that motivate uh, your reasoning, any individuals that come to mind along the way? Um... I don't know. Uh, I don't know philosophers of the past, but uh, from the point of view of my work, uh, I try to uh, follow uh, the footsteps, uh, uh, if this is even possible, uh, of uh, Professor Friedrich Beiser, who is a great historian of philosophy, because uh, he, uh, I think, uh, he managed to reach that perfect balance uh, between uh, making uh, uh, scholarly academical uh, uh, work, uh, so actual research uh, that uh, advances the knowledge of certain topics, uh, but also remain uh, uh, readable uh, and um, for a wider public. Uh, so I don't like uh, philosophy that uh, uh, um, stay too much uh, in its own lingo uh, that doesn't try to explain stuff. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it's always important to not always uh, say something new, but also try to explain uh, what you want to say or what the past philosopher were trying to say in a way that make it uh, <laughs> easy or as easy as possible for the reader to understand uh, these concepts. So. Uh, to not to remain uh, uh, in our uh, in, in our uh, tower uh, uh, in the academic world uh, where uh, we are almost unreadable for uh, everyone else. Uh, so I don't know uh, if I, I'm probably I I'm not as uh, successful uh, in this uh, objective as a professor Beiser from a Syracuse University, but uh, he's like uh, my, uh, the, the living oh, example oh, oh. that it's possible to, uh, to reach that perfect balance. <laughs> Making it approachable to people so they can link to it more closely than if it was further away and also not needing to always reach for some sort of new concept. Maybe sometimes you can work on past concepts and understand them more clearly. That's great. Makes it more personable. Where might people find your work? Would you direct them anywhere to find your material? Yeah, uh, the book, uh, uh, The Philosophy of Petzold, is going to be published uh, soon by Bloomsbury, so uh, you can buy it uh, in all the usual channels, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I have uh, my name, so it's very easy to find me, or uh, on uh, all the platforms uh, that are usually uh, used by academics like uh, ResearchGate, uh, Academia.edu, and uh, so. And I have a pretty unique name, so it's very easy to find me uh, with Google. <laughs> this is a true, I can agree on that. It is readily comes up. This is wonderful. And it's nice. It's very quick moving. I feel, I've, I've always had the feeling that our names do a lot. If they're quick moving, that people remember us that way. If there is uh, alliteration, it's more memorable sometimes. 
if there are certain parts of it that sound more upbeat, maybe they'll think of us as more upbeat. I think names have some sort of uh, message to them. Yeah, I think that for academics, it's kind of a curse to be like John Smith, uh, some, some basic name where no one can find you. <laughs> That's true. Where's Joe Smith? You mean Joe Smith 14 or 12? No, 54. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, great. That's pretty cool. Okay. Professor. Thank you again for having me, and it was very pleasant to discuss with you. Very glad to have had you on, describing a bit about Joseph Petzl, uh, uniqueness, relativism, relativity, and related topics in philosophy. Professor Chiara Russo-Kraus, glad to have you on the show.